If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of First Timothy, to the letter of First Timothy, the Apostle Paul writing to Pastor Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus, and uh, consequently to the rest of the Ephesian elders and to the church of Ephesus at large, as we continually remember that this would be a letter that would be put forth to the congregation, right? This would be something that would be uh, read in the gathering, read in the assembly, and so we want to be mindful of that as we can continue to work through this. And last week we began working through chapter 4, and so we're kind of continuing that journey this morning, and we're going to see a little bit of overlap as, as this is um, the Apostle Paul still giving some instructions based on what we began to look at last week, which uh, was... Uh, really the sufficiency of Christ, these false teachers and their false teaching striking at the heart of God's gospel and and causing uh, those in the church of Ephesus uh, that Timothy and the elders were uh, tasked to defend and to protect. Uh, It uh, kind of seeped and crept in there over an extended period of time, that teaching that Uh, would eventually lead to some of them abandoning the faith. And so this morning, we are going to look at verses 6 to 10, and then I'm going to pray, and then we have three things that uh, I think we need to see from these few verses this morning. And so the Apostle Paul to Timothy, he writes these letters. He says, if you, he's speaking to Timothy, Paul says, if you Put these things, okay, these things that we kind of looked at last week, particularly the, pre, the verses preceding this text. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. Verse 8, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for the time of singing, Lord, being able to declare that you really are a great God, Lord. And God, we thank you that as we sing, God, that you can hear our voices. We thank you that as we pray, that you can hear our prayers, Lord. And again, we know that that's made possible because in your goodness, in your kindness, God, you've given us Christ. And Lord, as we look at this These few verses this morning, I ask that your Holy Spirit would give all of us humility, God, and discernment, and the grace that we need to trust you and to trust your word and to trust the way that you've organized your world. And so, Lord, help us this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes, the the first thing, and really what I want to spend a good amount of time on this morning, is that our focus as Christians, when we're looking at this text, and and really uh, we could could apply this to um, 
all uh, different texts in the Scripture. It's really a, a, uh, a, a meta-narrative of, of Scripture. But our focus as Christians should be on faithfulness, not on fruitfulness. Our focus as Christians should be on faithfulness, not fruitfulness. Right? We, we don't, we don't want to get this backwards because when we do, and if we put the cart before the horse, if we're, we're so focused on faithfulness that, or we're so focused on fruitfulness that faithfulness kind of falls to the wayside, when we get it backwards, we'll always compromise. Right? When, when our focus is on fruitfulness and, instead of faithfulness, we'll try to manufacture fruitfulness. When our focus is on fruitfulness instead of faithfulness, we abandon oftentimes faithfulness. And when we abandon faithfulness, we're prone to fear man and and produce man-centered outcomes. Another way of saying this is that if we neglect faithfulness to God, we'll become an ends-justify-the-means sort of church. Timothy, as the shepherd of the church of Ephesus, as the pastor of the church of Ephesus, was called by God through the apostle Paul to be faithful, right? We see that in verse 6. Look at verse 6 again. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you've followed. Paul says, if you put these things in front of the brothers, again, these things meaning the very things that we looked at last week, those preceding verses there. Paul says, if you put that forward, he says to Timothy, if you put this forward, if you deliver that message... You'll be popular and well-liked. That's not what he says, right? Paul says, if you deliver that message, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ. You'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ. And, And do you recognize in our text that word servant? If you don't, pay attention to that, that word there. Right? That word servant, it's the same word for deacon, which we looked at several weeks back. Diakonos is the word there. Right? A pastor is to be a good deacon of Jesus. Right? He's to be a good servant of Jesus. And that's all he is. That's all the elders are. Right? Servants of Christ Jesus. That should be the aim of any pastor, of any elder. That should be the aim of any Christian, is to be a good, faithful servant of Christ Jesus. But at the end of the day, right, as we're looking at our text here, a pastor, an elder, really is simply called to that one thing, to be a faithful, good servant of Christ Jesus. That's it. That's it. It, It's not complicated. We try to make it complicated, but when we get right down to the heart of the matter and we repent of our overcomplicating of things as pastors and as elders, we see that we're to be good servants of Christ Jesus. And, And how does Paul conclude that charge of being a good servant, a faithful servant of Christ Jesus in verse 6? He says this, he says, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you've followed. Paul is telling Timothy to keep down the road that he's been going on for some time now, from childhood. Timothy isn't to rely on his own words. He doesn't have the authority 
to rely on his own words. He can't rely on his own wisdom because he doesn't have the authority to rely on his own wisdom. He doesn't have this mindset that he knows what's best for the church. Timothy's not allowed to do that. Again, that's putting fruitfulness before faithfulness. And when we put fruitfulness before faithfulness, what we're really doing is committing idolatry. Timothy's authorized to do one thing, and that's what his master, Jesus Christ, tells him to do. It's the good doctrine that he's followed. I think here of of Timothy's testimony and, and Paul's encouraging of Timothy in the second letter that he wrote in 2 Timothy. Flip over there for just a moment because it, it's worthwhile for us to see it. But if we look at chapter 3 in 2 Timothy, verses 14 to 17, we can see why this would harmonize well with our passage this morning. Paul says this, he says, But as for you, he's speaking again to Timothy, continue, right? Continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then if you've been in church life for any length of time, you're familiar with this passage. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Right? This is a charge to be faithful. It's a charge to be faithful. The sacred writings which contain the, the God-breathed Scripture makes one wise, according to this passage here in 2 Timothy, it makes one wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Right? Paul is telling Timothy that the Scriptures are sufficient. Right? The Scriptures are sufficient. So, in light of that, in light of the Scriptures being sufficient, in light of the Scriptures being able to make one wise for salvation because the Scriptures point toward the sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ, in light of all that, be an instructor, faithful instructor of the Word. Be a faithful doer of the Word. Be a servant. Be a good, faithful servant of Christ Jesus. The measure of spiritual health amongst elders and amongst the church is marked by faithfulness to God and His Word, right? If, if, we wanna, if, we, if we want to evaluate our spiritual health as a church, we need to pay attention to our faithfulness to the Lord and our faithfulness to His Word. And particularly, right, the leaders of the church should be marked by their faithfulness to the Lord and the faithfulness to His Word, right? No matter what the blowback is, right? The under-shepherds of God's church are to be faithful to Christ, and we do that by faithfully submitting to His Word. I mentioned this to you a couple of weeks ago, but this very morning, we have our Canadian pastor brothers, some of which were, if you remember us praying for them, some of which were imprisoned in, in 2020 and 2021 for holding public services in Canada. But this morning, Canadian brothers and sisters are preaching uh, from the text 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. And I want to read you that text for a moment and and give you some comments because this is a good illustration of faithfulness to God and His Word. The Apostle Paul, he wrote this to the church of Corinth, right? If you know anything about the church of Corinth, you would know uh, how it had been impacted um, by uh, pagan ideologies and pagan... um, 
uh, worship practices and just had a, it was a, a worldly uh, church. He says, there, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then these beautiful words in verse 11 here, right? And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Right, the, the evan- that's an evangelistic call on this passage, right? That's, that's a call toward repentance and fleeing that which is ugly and leads to death and, and being set back on the road of, of truth and of beauty, which is the path toward restoration uh, to God in Christ Jesus. But the evangelistic call in that passage, particularly as it relates to homosexuality, has been made illegal in Canada through a bill called Bill C-4. And these men who are committed to preaching this this morning, they're not looking for controversy. They're not looking for controversy. They don't want attention. They aren't instigators, no matter how we may see them perceived in the media, if you've seen them perceived in the media uh, at all. But these men, these brother pastors, are sweet, kind, godly, gentle men who are faithful servants of Jesus Christ. One of the pastors up there put it this way uh, not too long ago. He says, the, the church has not gotten more political. Uh, the government has gotten more religious, is, is, is the issue, especially over the last several years, right? This is a jurisdictional issue. The, the Canadian government is assuming ecclesiastical authority, authority that has not been given to them by God. These men, these pastors, are committed to building God's kingdom by using God's unchanging word, right? They're committed to preaching a message of reconciliation to all people, right? All people need the message of reconciliation, right? These men aren't going to unlovingly discriminate against a particular people group. They wouldn't unlovingly stop addressing the person who's practicing homosexuality. Precious souls that are created in the image of God are at stake, right? It's genuinely a life or death situation, right? These brothers want to see sinners from all walks of life, which if you read that passage again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you read it and you see that it's listed in such a way that none of us in this room are off the hook, right? They want to see sinners from all walks of life washed. They want to see sinners from all walks of life life sanctified. They want to see sinners from all walks of life justified. And the only way to do that is the way that God has told us in His Word to do that, which is a call for repentance of those cherished, sacred sins in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died specifically for those sins right? Christ died specifically for those sins that Paul would dare mention to a church and call them to repentance based on their justification that's been acquired for them through the spilled blood of Christ Jesus. These men in Canada this morning will face up to five years in jail for doing that, right? They risk being unlawfully taken from their families. They risk being unlawfully taken from their kids, all because they're heralding what Christians have heralded 
for thousands of years, which is the good news of the gospel, right? The wisdom of the world sees good news as wicked and as oppressive and, and hateful, right? And, and we by no means have the authority to be angry or bitter or unkind in our heralding of a good, beautiful message, right? So God forbid that our heart posture and the way in which we promote the Lordship of Christ come across as is hateful in any shape, form, or fashion, right? We need to, to take the log out of our own eyes and repent of our own sins, and we need to see the sins of other people and deal with them as gently as possible as we call them to repent of sin and trust in this glorious Savior. Right? But by man's standards, this is not a battle worth engaging in, right? This isn't the battle worth fighting, but I'll tell you what it is, right? It's an example to us this very morning. It's an example to us of the faithful thing to do. It's the faithful thing to do. These men are faithful servants of Christ, and they truly love people created in God's image. If you're wondering what it means to love your neighbor in our day and age, there is an example to you, right? Timothy was called to be faithful in his pastoring at Ephesus, no matter what the cost for it was, right? And it was there within his own church, right? And I'm not even talking about this morning or with, with this text that it's necessarily outside of the church. We know that he was martyred outside of the church for heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ, but even within his own church ministry context, there was constant conflict here, right? He suffered, the elders at Ephesus suffered. The sheep at Ephesus suffered due to false teaching and false ideologies. Right? But how much more harm would have been caused if Timothy would have abandoned the task that God, would have, that God called him to? Right? Think of the devastation of remaining silent on those very things that God has called us to speak about. Christianity... Right? Biblical Christianity, it cost us something. I don't know if we know that or not. Right? It cost us something. And, and, and particularly in the West here, we know little about that, right? right we, we have enjoyed, and truly, right? And, and if I had to point out an, a big idol in our society, amongst all the big idols in our society, it would be the idol of respectability. We love being respectable. We love being seen as intellectuals, right? The problem is, is the very things that God has called us to don't look very intellectual and respectable in broader culture, right? And I don't think that we have truly appreciated that because we've been quite comfortable for so long in Western Christianity, right? We've enjoyed being included amongst the intellectuals in society. In fact, we enjoy it so much that we try to find as much common ground as possible, being very willing to shed as much Christianity as we can so we're not labeled as, God forbid, fundamentalists. All right, what, what is the least amount that I can subscribe to and still be a Christian? All right, we may not say that, but we operate that way so often. Right? That's the opposite of how Timothy would have thought. Right, Tim- Timothy would have submitted to all of Christ for all of life. Right? All of Christ for all of life. There is absolutely nothing off 
limits to the lordship of Jesus Christ, right? I, think, I can't remember the last time I told you this, but I know I've, I've said this before, right? Abraham Kuyper, founder of Free Amsterdam University, ranked high as a government official uh, in, in Amsterdam at, at one point, um, said at the inaugural speech of Free Amsterdam University that there's no place in all of creation in which Jesus Christ, there's not, not, not a square inch, I think is what he says, in all of creation in which Jesus Christ does not cry, mine, mine right? And that's not just limited to what we see. That's limited to every motivation of our hearts, right? There's nothing off limits from Christ, all right? Christ in the worldview that comes along with having him as Savior should be seeping into every aspect of our lives, right? And and, and we should never stop growing in this, right? Right? We're all in, in different stages in our lives. We're all in different places in our sanctification. There's times where, man, we seem like we're taking three steps forward and then we take five steps backwards, right? Don't despair in that. Thank God for the struggle. Thank God for the forward movement in your life. We should never stop growing. We're all growing in godliness. And we, as we, Lord's day by Lord's day, submit ourselves more and more to the Word of God, right? He's going to use that to conform our thinking after him. Now, another thing going on here, and I mentioned this last week, another thing going on in our text this morning is that Paul, I think, is preemptively consoling Timothy by refocusing Timothy on what actually matters, right? If we keep the context in mind here, we know again that Timothy is calling out publicly false teachers. He's exposing their teachers, but in the midst of that, as Paul has already warned, he's going to lose some of them. But he's going to lose some of them. Is that a reason to be sad and to mourn? Absolutely it is. Right? We, we should be affected emotionally when someone that we know and love abandons the gospel that they once cherished. Is this a reason, though, to be discouraged and paralyzed in despair? No. Right? We're called, again, we're called to be faithful. We're called to be faithful in our Lord who is sovereign, our Lord who is good, takes care of the fruit part, takes care of the results part. And so we want to continually bring ourselves before our sovereign and good God, and we want to continually bring one another before our sovereign and good God. We want to continually bring our loved ones who are drifting from Christ to our sovereign and good God. Like, like Timothy, we may get discouraged oftentimes from the lack of fruitfulness in our lives, right? It's, it's easy to get discouraged look, looking around and, and not seeing the things that we so desperately desire, the very good things that we so desperately uh, desire in our lives and in the lives of other people, right? It can be discouraged when we don't see those good things Um, brought about on our own timetable, but we have to prioritize, even in the midst of that, we have to prioritize faithfulness over fruitfulness. Continue down the road of being faithful to the Lord, trusting in Him, resting in Him. Focus, center your life around that. Now, how can we know, and these are just some questions as I've thought through this text this week, how can we know because we all do this in some shape, form, or fashion. How can we know that, that we're uh, putting fruitfulness 
over faithfulness? What are some good questions uh, that we can ask ourselves? And these are just a few questions that I thought of as I uh, kind of thought through this text this week. We can know if we're too focused on fruitfulness, which, by the way, Fruitfulness meaning results, right, uh, is kind of what I'm getting at. We can know if we're too focused on fruitfulness, on results, if we are easily discouraged or easily angered or paralyzed by fear. How can we know that we're too focused on fruitfulness? We can know it if we're often impatient and discontent with God's ways and God's timing of growing us and nurturing us, right? So often we can be discontent or impatient with God's ways and, and God's timing in, in growing ourselves and in growing other people, right? A lot of times I can be real patient with myself and my own growth, right? But uh, I can lack a lot of patience in other people's growth, right? Um, and so if we're, we, can, we can be impatient with where other people are too often, Third, we can know if we're too focused on fruitfulness or on results if we try to, and this, this happens so often, if we try to manipulate others right, to get our desired outcome, no matter how noble that outcome may be. Right? If we're trying to manipulate people in a particular direction, kind of uh, usurping the role of the Holy Spirit, if you will, uh, and I'm not saying don't, don't commend things with urgency and with passion toward people. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is you need to be careful that you're not trying to manipulate someone to get a particular outcome on your own timing, right? Don't manipulate people, no matter how noble you tell yourself the result's going to be. We can spot it if we compromise the doctrines of God, right, in the face of conflict or in the face of disagreement or in the face of adversity for the sake of some false counterfeit unity or because we really desire to be perceived as a nice person. That's another idol in our culture, niceness. So the first thing, right, we want to learn from Paul's exhortation to Timothy is that biblical faithfulness precedes biblical fruitfulness, right? Biblical faithfulness precedes biblical fruitfulness. So we want to be faithful. We want to set our gaze on Christ who's seated at God's right hand, and we want to live in light of the authority of Christ and consequently his instructions. Okay, so the second thing, reverence God. Reverence God, right? Verse 7, have nothing to do, right? Nothing to do literally means refuse, refuse irreverent, silly myths. Rather, right, here's the counter here, rather train yourself for godliness, for why bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Most scholars agree that verse 9 there, this saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, relates to verses 7 and 8 regarding the the bodily training and the training of godliness there. Uh, th- these verses read a little bit like a put-off, put-on, if you're familiar with that framing in Scripture. But here's the issue. Irreverent, silly myths. Right? That word irreverent means to profane or slander. Profane or slander. It's blasphemous. It's sinister. It's godless. It leads to, and the reason why it's so Profane, the reason why it's so blasphemous is because it leads to a life of ungodliness. And then that word silly there, 
is translated of old women, of old women. And if you're wondering, it's where we get old wives' tales from. Um, so, but we use that phrase, old wives' tales, as it refers a lot to like past kind of quirky home remedies, maybe, that, that our moms uh, gave us, which I'm often surprised by how grounded in reality those past uh, remedies often are. But, but that's not the biblical origin of that expression. Paul here is, he's mocking, it seems, the teaching that, that he has, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, that he's so sharply rebuked. Both that, that Judaic and Gnostic teachings, his target was the Judaic and the, the Gnostic teachings that we've looked at, right? Paul's mocking the doctrine of these false teachers, and he's telling Timothy not even to entertain it, right? He wants Timothy to smother it. Right? It's, it's not to be allowed to have any breathing room at the church of Ephesus because this teaching, as we saw last week, is leading people away from Christ because the teaching, the false teaching, which is the motive of the false teachers, is, is, is to strike at the heart of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So Timothy is to refuse. He's to put off. He's to put out these blasphemous tall tales that have the capacity to take the hearts of his congregants captive. And it's here that we need to ask ourselves these questions. We need to ask ourselves questions like this. What's taking your heart captive? What's taking your heart captive? What are the things in your life that promote skepticism and doubt as it relates to the sufficiency of Christ? Again, that's what we see Paul addressing. What is it that you're entertaining yourself with that you should refuse, that you should not give air to? What are the meditations of your heart that run contrary to God's revealed will in His Word? Parents, let me ask a direct question of us. What potential narratives are you allowing your children to be devoured by that lead them toward embracing godless ideologies? And we can ask follow-up questions to answer that question. What do they laugh at? What are they interested in? What are they disinterested in? Because oftentimes what kids are disinterested in can tell you a lot about where their heart is. These things have to be exposed in our lives, and these things have to be refused as godless ideologies, godless tall tales that have the capacity to harm us spiritually, not to mention harm those around us, right? Everything... And this is where I think the church hasn't been paying attention well. Everything in our lives is discipling us. Absolutely everything is discipleship. There's nothing that's neutral, right? If you're looking for unbiased news, it does not exist, right? There's nothing that's neutral. Everything is discipling us, and we need to be aware of that. It's not that we can hide from that, nor should we take some sort of separatist like Amish way of life, right? That's not what we should be doing. We need to be aware of these things so that we can analyze them, look at them through a biblical worldview, right? Pay attention to it so that we can have a a, a sort of God-centered, healthy perspective on our life and in our circumstances, right? But Paul, he doesn't end there for us in this text. He he continues, as, as we refuse those things which res- that strike at the heart of the gospel, and, and, and again, one of the ways in which we're doing that is paying attention to those things which are discipling us, right? But as we refuse those things that spiritually harm us, right, as we refuse those things, 
we embrace those things which promote godliness, right? So we want to uh, refuse those things which strike at the heart of the gospel, and we want to embrace those things which promote godliness, right? Fasting from worldliness should be followed by feasting on Christ. Or to put it another way, fasting from worldliness without feasting on Christ will lead us to spiritual poverty every time. Right? Fasting from worldliness without feasting on Christ leads to spiritual poverty. Right? Paul says, rather train yourself for godliness. Verse 8, for while the bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Right? The Greek word for godliness in that passage is eusibia, eusibia and it means piety. That word means piety, and piety means reverence toward God, right? We're, we're not in danger in our church or in our culture. We're not in danger of reverencing God too much, are we? I don't think that that's a ditch we need to be concerned about, is it? We're not in danger of reverencing God too much, right? But our God, who is a consuming fire, Hebrews chapter 12, 29 we just sang about the holiness of God a moment ago. Our, our, our God, who's a consuming fire, has made himself close to us through the person of Christ Jesus and by his indwelling Holy Spirit. And that makes for us, God, our creator, knowable. That gives us the actual capacity to reverence our God who's a consuming fire. We don't just know him intellectually as Christians. We have the ability to know him experientially, right? We have the ability to know him in warm devotion. And not to get too philosophical on us, but this is a core issue with that early Gnosticism that the Apostle Paul is battling and with the remnants of Gnosticism even today. If the material is evil, which is what Gnostics would proclaim, material is evil. If material is evil, then God could never be close to us because God would never become a man. Because man... His body, right, his material. Therefore, God must be unapproachable. And we, we have to grapple in the dark as it relates to knowing him. Which means that we can't reverence him, not, not really. But we know as Christians that God is knowable, right? God is knowable. God, who's this consuming fire, has not just redeemed for us that which is spiritual, but he's redeemed, his redeeming power, if you will, it extends to the physical, right? That's why this world, this actual world is being made new, right? Because Christ, who's truly God and truly man, bodily resurrected in this world. And because God is close and because God's knowable, we can, again, truly reverence Him, right? Reverencing God isn't something we do because He's distant and unknowable. Reverence for God is something uh, that deists can't do, not in any biblical sense of the word. Reverence for God is something we do because we do know Him, And we have to be trained in this. And this is something that we, we cultivate in a very particular way. Now, there's, a, there's a connection between this letter, 
from Paul to Timothy in a second letter, right? Not just because Paul wrote it to Timothy, but there's a lot of similar instructions between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. But there's this word in there, train, in our text. And there's a good connection point in the second letter. You, can, you don't have to flip back there, but I read the passage to you just a moment ago, 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we, if we connect these two verses with what we're seeing Paul instructing Timothy and 1 Timothy, and especially uh, in light of the first verse that we read where Paul mentioned words of faith and the good doctrine that you followed, right? In verse 6, we see that Paul's directing Timothy again. He's directing Timothy toward the all-sufficient Scripture, which according to verse 17 of the verse I just read to you, has the capacity to produce a fully furnished man and woman of God. Right? That's what the text means when it says complete, equipped for every good work. Peter says something similar, Second Peter 1.3, His divine power, the Lord's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There's the word that God, the word godliness there is the word piety there again. Through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence, right? The Holy Spirit of God can illumine for us the very word he inspired, and it contains all those things related to life and godliness. This isn't the Bible testifying that it's some sort of encyclopedia or dictionary, right? We're not to read our Bibles in that way, right? This is speaking of the good life that's found in having your sins forgiven in Christ Jesus and walking close with the triune God through the very means that he's provided to commune with him, right? We can be near God because he's made that way clear to us and clear for us, right? We can cultivate our relationship with him by devoting ourselves and submitting ourselves to his unchanging word. And as we do that, we can spot and we can discern error and not give an inch of ground in it, uh, to it in our hearts and in our thinking. So first, faithfulness over fruitfulness. Second, reverence for God. And last, our hope in God the Savior gives us eternal assurance. Our hope and God the Savior gives us eternal insurance. Verse 10, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who's the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We saw at the beginning of the letter that Paul used, if you remember, several months ago, God used that phrase that isn't a very familiar phrase in Scripture, God our Savior, right? We see him use it here again. And Paul's saying something significant here that we, that's worthy of our attention, right? Paul's saying, Paul's saying God is the Savior of all people, right? First, it shouldn't be a proof text for universalism, right? And so we would want to reject that. But it shouldn't be a passage either that's used to repudiate the doctrine of predestination. That would be an improper way to use this as well, right? That's not what Paul's getting at in this passage of Scripture. Paul is dealing here still with these false teachers, right? There are Christians in Ephesus who would have been deeply concerned about their assurance of faith. And they're deeply concerned about their assurance of faith because they've given heed to the doctrines that disturb their conscience, right? It's what we're still going on here. They've, they've become, or they're slowly becoming enslaved, right? When you have impressive, confident, religious figures telling you 
that there, there are some additional things that you must do to be right with God, that can disturb your conscience, right? I remember growing up and sitting under the preaching of this traveling evangelist that would be invited into our church every now and then. And, and uh, he would come and he would give a sermon and he was a really good singer. He could sing. And, and he had this larger-than-life personality, right? He was a very charismatic figure. He, his laughter and his personality were very infectious, if you will. He was an extremely confident individual and folks just seemed to gravitate toward him. He was just that sort of person. And every time he visited, he would tell the congregation that if they didn't remember the time or the place and some other mile markers, that they perhaps were not Christians. Uh, and, And I remember he, and I don't think this originated with him, but I remember he had this saying that he would always say when he would come and he would preach, and, and I've heard it elsewhere since then, but if you're 99% certain you're saved, you're 100% what? Have you heard it? Lost. If you're 99% certain you're saved, you're 100% lost. And as a kid, you could imagine that this terrified me. Um, it terrified me. And I wrestled with my own assurance of faith for a significant part uh, of my teenage years into um, my early 20s. And, and I noticed, and the more I've thought back to that time in my life, I remember uh, large altar calls. And, and we, I didn't grow up in a very big church. It was about the same size as our church. And, and I remember just about everybody in the pew would come down for an altar call uh, to be saved again. And I'm like, what is happening? And, um, but uh, I've known several men like that over the course of my ministry, uh, they would add these boxes that had to be checked. The, these boxes or these steps or these obstacles that they themselves would create. And, and whether the, it was well-intentioned or not, I don't know. But uh, these boxes had to be checked in order for you to have assurance of salvation. And in doing so, they, uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally, they distorted the gospel of God. Right? And, and then when the, uh, these men launched their websites, I remember paying attention when they started their websites uh, as they began to kind of promote their traveling ministries, if you will. And one of the things I noticed that they were doing was they were, uh, they were reporting the number of people uh, that would come down for the altar call. And they would say, these are the lives that have been changed. Uh, bring us in, bring me in. We'll do the same for your church. Um, if you want, who doesn't want to see lives changed, right? And um, and so so I began to see this reported, and, and I and I began to ask myself what was happening. What was happening there? And as I was prepping the sermon, it kind of like a light bulb clicked a little, or it was like a gear that shifted in my thinking. I'm like, this is a example, not the only example, but a example of fruitfulness over faithfulness. Right? This is an example of fruitfulness over faithfulness. Right? These men, they gained influence and they gained a, fo- a following. They had gravitas, and whether they intended it or not, they did cause spiritual harm. Right? As we saw last week, the false teachers, they knew exactly what they were doing. But many at Ephesus, they looked up to these teachers, which is why Timothy, the instruction to Timothy guarding the flock was so vitally important. These teachers were dismantling the assurance of faith that these believers at Ephesus 
had acquired at one point. They were distorting the gospel, and again, they were striking at the sufficiency of Jesus, right? It's God who's invented salvation. It's God who does the saving, and it's God who's going to see you home, right? They were striking at the heart of that. So what's Paul up to in this passage? It's that very thing. Paul is saying that God is the Savior of all men. Him saying God being the Savior of all men, it's further dismantling this sort of superior spiritual, spirituality that these elite, if you so-called elite spiritual teachers claimed that they had experienced, right? They were special. Paul's saying that God is not a respecter of persons. Right? God's no respecter of persons. We don't come to God based on our own respectability. We don't come to God based on our own pseudo-spirituality. We don't come to God on our terms. We don't do that. All men are sinners. Right? And, and, and that is as much of a contribution that any of us make to our salvation is our sin that needs to be forgiven. And God's salvation of His people Right? His elect people, which is why Paul differentiates between God being the Savior of all men and God being the Savior especially of those who believe, right? is purely, purely based on God's good, unchanging character and the sufficient work of Jesus. Right? God saves His people based on the merits of Christ, and He does so with people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, and he saves them. The, the preacher of the Hebrews tells us he saves them to the uttermost, which means that none of them will perish. There's not the capacity for them to perish because they didn't do anything to earn their salvation to begin with. They can't do anything to lose their salvation, right? They may disturb their conscience, right? They may be miserable because of sinful conditions. And by the way, we don't know the hearts of man, right? Only God knows the hearts of man, and so I, don't, I can't make a, 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 a definitive uh, uh, judgment on the condition of a person's soul, right? Peter denied Christ, and then God granted and restored him. Judas denied Christ, betrayed him, and he tried to earn his own justification by com- killing himself. Christ is the one that restores, because Christ is the one that forgives. Christ is the one that sustains, right? Christ is the one that sees us home. So for those Judaic false teachers who held to dietary laws and said, you must be like us to be saved, Paul says salvation begins and ends with the triune God. Right? For those Gnostics that claim to have special revelation from God, Paul says that God has spoken and he's done so finally through his Son. He alone is Savior and those that he saves are eternally secure. They'll never fall away. So our hope as Christians is anchored in God, right? It's anchored in God in this life, and it gives meaning to our work, to the thorns and thistles of our lives. It's anchored in God for the life to come, and this can, and it does, bring rest and bring peace and perseverance to a church that would otherwise be devoured by godless ideologies. So a few takeaways for us this morning. First is this, and this is in your worship, God. Number one, prioritize faithfulness to God and His Word. The Lord alone will produce the fruit, the outcome, in His timing and in His way. Isaiah 55, 11. Two, don't be discouraged when you can't discern fruit. Right? God grows indiscernible mustard seeds into very large, noticeable things like trees. So keep the faith. 
Three, remember that God the Savior is your hope. He alone saved you, He alone sustains you, and He alone will see you home. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel, Lord. We thank you that we can come again, Lord, and be reminded of it from your word. And Lord, we ask that you would protect our thinking, God. We ask you that you would give us wisdom and discernment, Lord, as we seek to be people that perpetually rest in Jesus Christ. And we love you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Now, this is the-